You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Psychedelia on your Sunday afternoon. Thank you very much to Freedom of Species. 1pm till 2pm next week on 3CI. If you want to find out anything more about anything you heard during Freedom of Species, visit the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Freedom of Species program page. You will find their website, the podcast, and also be able to follow them on social media, which you can do for ourselves as well, for In Psychedelia. My name is Nick. Uh, I am in the studio right now with uh, Penny Hill, former president of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, currently on the advisory board for mm-hmm. Students for Sensible Drug Policy. And just, uh, I, I, I don't even know how to like describe the fact that you also go along to the UN meetings and things like that. You, you do a lot of interesting things. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and also, uh, Ash Blackwell, uh, uh, I don't think you've missed a program so Ash uh, if you've listened I, to In Psychedelia in the past you've probably heard I think that. I've missed about four shows and we're about years. up to number 168 yeah. I, I'll have to check <laughs> wow well, hang on. I can actually check right now. 165. This is episode 165 of In Psychedelia. So there you go. Um, on the program this afternoon, on Friday, it was International Overdose Awareness Day. That happens on August 31st every year. Uh, it was started in the early 2000s. And I actually spoke with um, Sally Finn uh, Sally was or is known as the person that essentially started International Overdose Awareness Day, which is now celebrated in over, I believe, 38 countries um, and over 100 events across different cities across the world. Uh, on Friday, Melbourne, there were multiple events almost every um uh, alcohol and other drug service was running a um, an event on, uh, on International Overdose Awareness Day. I was at uh, North Richmond uh, first. And Penny, you went along to some things. How did you find International Overdose Awareness Day? Yeah, it was good. It was a really good event down at North Richmond today, um, on Friday. Um, the, I, I, it just in my opinion, I felt like the, the mood had changed so much compared to the event from this time last year um, before we found out the injecting room would open or even exist um and with you know more access to naloxone there was actually a lot um a lot of positive things to say um which which was it felt nice it's i mean international overdose awareness day is a day to recognize people we've lost from overdose and um the grief of friends and families around all of that loss and um but part, I think part of it as well, and I've really felt that this year, is not just recognising their loss, but recognising how preventable it was. Like how, I mean, yeah, these absolutely. are lives that, that should not have been lost. And now we're starting to implement things which will mean that these people are not lost because of a period of addiction to certain substances or buying uh, from a source that's no good or anything, whatever it happens to be that leads to, you know... 
One of the things I think that we need to remember is not to get um, static in our thinking about how people are in their relationship toward a drug or whatever it is. Everybody goes through all sorts of things throughout their life. All sorts of things happen. People's parents die. Their partners sometimes pass away. Awful things happen. Mm. Uh, you know, people have children. Their ch- uh, I, I have two kids now and I... I feel this like reading these stories about missing children or awful things happening happening to children and it's like wow that would really like hollow you out from the inside I can I can understand that and then you understand that if somebody doesn't have a way to pull it back together oh, well of course they could go and do something like uh hollow them or fill themselves with a um addiction to a certain substance or something like that it's what we need to understand in this whole thing is that people aren't uh, bound by the decisions that they make and that we need to help people sometimes when they fall on bad times. And there was actually a um, fantastic little uh, anecdote that Dr. Nico Clark, so I was at um, mm-hmm. the North... Uh, well, at the at the Medically Supervised Injecting Centre in uh, North Richmond on Friday speaking with the director, uh, Nico Clark, um, I had a long conversation with him. I've got the recording of that. I'm going to uh, piece that together later. But we, there was one anecdote that he told of just one of the people. They've had 8,000 people uh, through that centre in two months. Yes, yeah, so they've been 200 running 8, a day. Yeah, it's it? huge. Between 150 and 250 a day um, for, for two months. So it's huge. Um, and they have already had an effect. And, he, yeah, he told this story. I'm Nico Clark. I'm the medical director of the medically supervised injecting room here at North Richmond Community Health. I ran into one of our clients the other day who had a, who had a major overdose here. It was actually his first major overdose that just happened to be here. And he was definitely not into risky drug taking and was quite freaked out by it and came around and saw one of the doctors here about going on methadone. And got himself sorted out a little bit and organised to go and spend some time with his three-year-old son who'd been under the care of his mother for some time and he just, when he next saw me he was just very happy to tell me how pleased he was that the service had been here and that he, the overdose he had was here and that he was able to kind of facilitate his kind of decision to kind of go back on treatment and try and get himself sorted out a little bit. So that was... Um just a nice anecdote, I suppose, to hear. And, uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm really conscious of as as, as we are um, talking about these things is, um, and it's a point of difference of this show of in psychedelia that we're we're not here to say that the only acceptable course of life that has any relationship with drugs is abstinence. We understand that um, for a vast majority of people, for most of the time, uh, whatever drug they take, whether it's a legal or an illicit one, um, whether they've grown it at home or bought it from wherever they buy it from, um, will not have a problem with it. We understand that. But um, we also understand that it's important to take care of those who do come across those because that could be us one day as well mm. things can happen to us and we can end up in that position and i think um it's a i don't know sign of humility to to um to recognize that that um life doesn't always go how you want it to and sometimes you will you know do things that you might think you would never have done 
and I think that's that's the thing that I recognise in a lot of people who are uh, friends of mine um, and people that I know through community as well um, who are don't know a lot about drugs they're against drugs this idea of drugs but when they fall on hard times um uh, like one friend of mine in particular um he doctor shopped he never considered himself a drug user but he um he got himself some of the strongest opiates he could get from doctors and some of the strongest benzos that he could get from doctors and he i have never seen he he went nuts like he was he was nuts but he never considered this to be drug use it was not considered drug use because it was all through like seven different doctors. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Well, I think uh, also for the day, the Overdose Awareness Day, it's obviously about raising awareness of overdose. And there are um, a lot of resources and things out there if people who are listening are th- thinking that they might be um, in a situation where they be around someone who might overdose, what to do in an emergency um, that you can find on the International Overdose Awareness Day website. Just while we're on it, for anybody that's listening and wondering where they can find advice about this, because this, this was one of the um, conversations where I don't have the audio for it today, but um, uh, that we had with Nico Clark, that um, a lot of people have been coming to the centre and asking questions about um, safe injecting practices and um, you know how to look after themselves, and and that service is already provided through the needle and syringe program through Mm. various uh, alcohol and other drug facilities across the state um they will train people how to look after their veins if they are going to be somebody that injects how to look after them Mm. how to um look out for certain things um yeah it's i think i can't yep (laughs) I think um, I was having a chat with a, a friend um, just recently. You know, we kind of caught up after not seeing each other for a while and they were a person who had um, problems with addiction like a long time ago. And, you know, that was one of the things that they were talking about, how grateful they were that um, the period when they were injecting drugs coincided with the period where Australia took harm reduction seriously. Mm. Um, Like they were talking about when they used to go to their dealer, their dealer would actually like provide advice and like clean injecting equipment. Like it wasn't like the needle syringe programs existed and there were like drug user co-ops and organizations and harm reduction groups kind of starting up all around um all around the country but it was something that was like it was culturally ingrained within the drug using community as well that like harm reduction was like an important practice and um you know, um, and, and like the methadone program existing as well and kind of existing in a state where it was like not something that was like brushed off at the side, but it was core health policy that these kind of things existed and, and were supported. And now now we're at this point where uh, the idea that you have to message uh, to the population from the politicians uh, on certain issues so black in such a black and white manner in such a non-understanding manner um that that's that's the way that all policy should be is just backward when you hear things like that (laughs) but 
I don't know. I guess it's always sort of progressing as well. There's people that have. I don't know. It's it's always hard to tell like where you're at. Like there's always people that are doing good things. There's always advantages. This is this was the thing. I um, the the um, uh, government's response to the inquiry into mm. drug law reform was just released without any fanfare, with no social media, no media release, nothing. It was released. Somebody found it. Um, actually, was it you who found it, Penny? Who, yeah. Somebody? Yeah. And and sent it. I got it from. Uh, Linda, my colleague, uh, dance-wise, and um, uh, it's at 24 pages. There, I, I did a word search for the word recommendation. It literally mentions that word six times. So there were 50 recommendations in yeah. the report, and it mentions the word recommendation six times. Five of those times were in the, um, like, prologue or the whatever you call it in a document like the preamble yeah the preamble from the minister and a little bit about explaining what the documents meant to do and it said oh yeah there were a bunch of recommendations you use that word like four times and then during the actual like body of the um of the text the only other time that the word recommendation was used uh, was for a recommendation from another inquiry. So, uh, yeah. I don't know. It, but, like, a lot of their policy has been good. They, they've got the Medically Supervised Injecting Centre. They've, you know, they've done things. But they've also introduced a blanket ban on anything considered a psychoactive substance, which is absolutely absurd. And one of the things that the inquiry was meant to bring to their attention and they just ignore them. I don't know. Yeah. Two steps forward, four steps back. I don't... How I think many, the what is going on. I think the fact that like everybody was expecting this report to be released in September, yet instead it got released with no press release or media statement or announcement during the week of the biggest federal political uh-huh. upheaval in like I don't know what three four years. Very strategic. Um, you know, typically that's what governments do when they want to bury a report. Yep, mm-hmm. they'll release it. They'll either release it on the same day with like a hundred other reports so that there's no way that anybody can understand what what the content of all the stuff is or they'll release it on like grand final day or you know when there happens to be a federal leadership spill it's it's strategic but at the same time the way that we communicate now and the way that we find out about these things almost immediately it's just kind of it's petty now like that's how it comes across it's like ah. Oh, well, that was a bit of a shit thing to do. Like, we, we, we can pay attention to it, but, yeah, I get you playing the newspapers and the, the radio, uh, you know, talkback radio and, um, yeah, uh, very frustrating. But the, at the same time today, uh, sorry, not today, on, on Friday the uh, for International Overdose Awareness Day, there were a lot of... Um, uh, I was listening to ABC Melbourne and Nico Clark was on ABC Melbourne. Mm. There's a lot of feedback about that. It does seem that the public sentiment is changing. So it's one of those difficult things because I know what the government is doing right now feels, and I'm not a Labor voter myself, but I really like what they're doing. And I feel like uh, there's a lot of downsides, there's a lot of upsides, but they're, um, they're doing some good things. And I... I think that, like, I I think that, you know, we've got to be realistically, realistic politically about where we sit in, in, like, the election cycle and the real politic of situations. We're in campaign mode. Mm. Like, this is the week where, you know, a couple of weeks before now and over the next couple of weeks, we'll see all the candidates running their campaign launches. Um, That's something that's happening right now. And if, if they're not willing to take... 
um, like a strong policy position on these issues to a, to an election and make it a core election promise that they're willing to defend, then the report's not going to say much. Of course, it's not. It's it would be it would be political in a way that it wouldn't ordinarily be in the sense that like it would be campaign policy and you know and i think the other thing is like we're a bit cynical about them just talking about the their accomplishments but um given how slow a lot of drug policy moves they've they've done a lot like yep. i think that with the injecting center now they've accepted all three recommendations of jackie hawkins yep. um coronial inquest i think my that, and they could my memory is that they, rec- they they accepted the first two at the time something yep. was about expanding pianoloxone i forget what the second one was um but i think that they very quietly accepted and implemented something along those lines at the time and now with the injecting center they 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 have responded. There, there is some good things happening behind the scenes. They've expanded the drug court. Um, you know, they have announced more funding for, for treatment. We, you know, as people that are passionately interested in this policy issue, we're always going to want them to do more. Like, exactly. there's, there's never going to be a point where we're satisfied and think that there's nothing left to fight for. I think that's the important thing that we need to recognise. And it's for a lot of the, um, a lot of the shows on 3CR that have activists behind it what what i think we all need to realize it's a a point of humility but also a point of it's strategic in a way is that we always have to argue for more no matter what's going on you always have to argue for the next step um and if you accept what's going on you have to as part of what's going on you have to if you want to be effective, you want to work with what's going on and be strategic, but you should not forget that you want more at the same time because if you do, then you might just end up going, oh, well, this is okay, we've got it going on nicely now, and then it gets entrenched, and then same old problems happen. You always have to push. It's always I don't think push. we'll ever forget. And you have to take <laughs> it all the way to the finish line. This was what was like key with the campaign for the injecting centre. You know, it's um, like I had the uh, privilege, I guess, of, of um, meeting some people that were intimately involved the last time around in Melbourne when there was a facility built and ready to go and then, you know, got wound back at in, the last minute. year 2000, wasn't that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, it was pretty much ready to go. Like they, they had everything set up. It was like all they needed was the last tick of approval and they could have started operating pretty much the next day. Um, and that, that was wound back. And so, you know, like just remembering that there is always more to fight for and you do, you do need to, like even when you've got the wins, you've got to mm. carry it across the line because um, there's always going to be those, those forces pushing against it in the other direction. I and think, we're I seeing think... that with the, the rhetoric coming out from some of the Liberal candidates, you know, the, the law and order agenda, send everyone to jail for a million years kind of rhetoric. Yeah, I, and I think part of that is um, something that I've, and all of us have uh, realised that this isn't the first time this conversation has been had. We've we've been having this conversation for a long time and recognising those who have done it before is very important and I hope that there are some people listening now who have been involved with these for longer than I've been alive for. Uh, I've spoken with people um, who have been, you know, part of these things for longer than I've been alive for and 
it's easy to step I think I think this is the the thing it's easy to step into apathy at that point because you just see no change ever but it's in also just as important to speak about these things with the next generation and there are there are changes it's just slow at the moment until we have like all all out like fiery revolution <laughs> which will be on Saturday. <laughs> ready. Uh, anyway, this is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Uh, we've probably been ranting at you for long enough. We do have uh, right now um, Sally Finn, who I spoke to on Friday for International Overdose Awareness Day uh, down in St Kilda. Um, this is Finn. Uh, my name is Sally J Finn, or more lately SJ Finn, and I'm the founder of International Overdose Awareness Day. Um, 2001, we uh, had a small event in the backyard of St Kilda Crisis Centre, and um, it went very well. That first year, we gave out 6,000 ribbons uh, around uh, Australia and sent them overseas to New Zealand. It was very successful from the very first year. Um, what had happened was that a, a bloke from the city of Port Phillip had come to visit. I was managing the needle and syringe program at the crisis centre at the time and he said he had $1,500 and did I have an idea for a project that we would, you know, he could give me the money for. And I said, well, it occurs to me that we don't have a day that uh, considers people's grief around those people that they've lost to overdose. And he said, oh, yes, that's a great idea. Let me go away, check out with other organisations around their ideas. He came back to me and he said, well, actually... uh, there is another idea from another organisation, so I'm going to give you half the money, $750, and um, we chose a day, we chose a name, uh, Overdose Awareness Day for the day. The two of us went out, Peter Stracco is his name, the two of us went out and uh, we bought ribbon and pins and we started to give them out over the exchange and we had to keep going back and buying more and more ribbon because more and more people wanted to acknowledge those that had lost their lives to overdose. May I ask who the other project was? Uh, (laughs) I do know. The other project was uh, buying heridoid cream for uh, scars for... Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so $750 worth of heridoid cream was purchased and given out uh, by another organisation. But over the years, international, well, I mean, it's called International Overdose Awareness Day. Uh, Is it celebrated um, or celebrated, recognised, I suppose? Well, it depends on how how you want to see these things. Celebrating people's lives, but also there's another side to that. Acknowledging Um, the loss. Acknowledging, yeah, acknowledging the loss and also acknowledging that we can... And should be doing better. Absolutely, um, yeah. Is this something that a lot of other countries have been taking uh, have been taking up? Well, this year um, there are apparently approximately thirty-seven countries around the world that are uh, having an event and uh, raising awareness. And there are over 700 events. So the last count was, you know, 712 or something events. And uh, I don't think that it's going to stop growing. Every year that uh, we've held it, something else has happened that uh, has added to the day 
um, which has continued to help it grow and uh, to reach into places that people are, you know, grateful to have a spot in the in the year to think about those people that they've lost and to uh, remember them with joy, you know, and remember all the achievements that um, were uh, that uh, remember the entire person rather than just the fact that they did die of an overdose. Is there? Um uh, actually, I should say we're standing here now in um, the... The Sacred Heart Mission Church or Sacred Heart Church in St Kilda yep. in Grey Street. And this morning I was across at um, North Richmond Community Health uh, where the medically supervised injecting room or centre, depending on yeah. what, what, what language you want to use for it, is. And I know there are, there are a number of events around Melbourne today by a number of organisations, but this year, is, is that one of the one of the successes, do you think, the medically supervised injecting room? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, of course, uh, from my perspective, I would love to see a few of them popping up in different jurisdictions in Melbourne. But, uh, yes, it, it is a, an achievement to get one up and running um, and in an area where it's needed. Um, we are most proud, probably, though, of the program to train people to use naloxone, which is the overdose reversal drug. And that has been... Um, we have had a fifth of the uh, the kits that we've given out uh, reverse an overdose. So, you know, we've given out something like 500 kits. That means 100 people have been brought back from an overdose. Could have, would have potentially died. Absolutely. You know, um, I mean, it is unclear as to whether they would have passed away, but it's certainly, it's stopped. Would have been an emergency situation. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and uh, I mean, that's something that's really important as well. And a lot of the um, needle and syringe programs offer, uh, the, the facilitators of those programs offer naloxone training for uh, just about anybody that wants to take it, I believe. I Absolutely. Actually... We've got really good at doing very short, sharp uh, training over the counter. A lot of our clients know exactly you know how to recognize an overdose and those sorts of things so it's really about teaching them to how to apply the medicine in terms of the contraption that they get um, and uh, yeah and and to know you know some certain things like naloxone does wear off after 30 minutes to 45 minutes and so the opioid overdose can come back and right. stuff like that that is so, the first time I've learned that ah. I, I've done naloxone training and I, I didn't know that okay yeah. so okay that's that's just good I'll put that in the back of my brain um, that's good what uh, this year as well, International Overdose Awareness Day, um, I have been reading reports, I haven't read deep into them, but I have been reading yeah. reports that it's the, um, we have the highest number of deaths from opiates in 17 years or something like that in Victoria? That's right. We, um, I, I'm, uh, it's remiss of me that I can't give you the exact numbers, so I won't attempt, yeah. but um, the numbers are growing and growing and growing in Australia at an alarming rate, and a lot of them are around uh, pharmaceutical medications. So um, even uh, we're now seeing uh, doctors prescribe fentanyl patches and um, the uh, oxycodone group of drugs, you know, are quite dangerous. And if you're taking those sorts of drugs and you happen to drink and you happen to take a benzo, you know, you're, you're in... Uh, that's actually a good point there. It's not just the opiate alone. No. It's a combination of substances that often leads to leads people into, into problems. Most people die with a combination of drugs in their system. 
it's true that opiates um, or opioids really like ramp things up in regard to that. But yes, most people have other things on board. We have had things like script-wise come in, which the, the intention of that is to monitor people's um, prescription medications to find out uh, if they are doctor shopping, yeah. and the, the, the term that's used. Um, but there might be unintended consequences of that sort of thing where um, people might then go and seek opioids in, in different places or uh, leave a, a sort of grey sort of pharmaceutical market and enter a black market. Mm. Do you have any thoughts about this approach? Yeah. Are we doing it right? Well, um, this is what's happened in the, the States, actually, that mm. people have um, had a, a, you know... A, a problem or an issue with um, not using too many oxycodone drugs and then of course uh, there's been alarming statistics around that and so doctors have been reluctant to prescribe them and some people have gone out and scored heroin. Because basically. people still have the drive and That's a lot of right. the time it's a, a drive of either pain, or usually pain, it just seems to be a lot of yeah. people that have pain that is unresolvable mm-hmm. and they don't know what to do with it. That is the story I'm hearing anyway. Is that is that yeah. accurate or Look, you know, there's so many reasons why people would take a depressant like an opioid. Um, sometimes do um, quell that, like, incredible feeling of success in their life. You know, Philip yeah. Seaman Hoffman, I'm sure he was overawed by everything, yeah. excitement in his life, and he was trying to kind of, you know... I mean, I shouldn't Double say that down. because... No, yeah, no. but... I know that that uh, some people do... uh, There are very many, many reasons why people end up taking an opioid. Um, Probably most of all because it feels good, actually. Yes. (laughs) Um, But... um, the script stuff is one, I guess, tool in the uh, toolkit that can actually help to, uh, I don't know, stem the flow and, um, you know, try to get a handle over people using too many uh, opioids. But um, it's certainly not a silver bullet. It's not going to fix it on its own. And there will be unintended consequences. We don't want people under-medicated. And that is a real risk. You know, I think what, what should happen more, my personal opinion, is that doctors that are giving these scripts should be also giving a script for naloxone. And the mere fact that they would do that would uh, signal to the patient that they need to be careful of having an overdose. It's a very that seems pretty common sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, is, is that is that even a possibility? Like now that you've said that, that's... so easy yeah. to do, and yet so underutilised uh, an idea. You know, it's really uh, so the doctors aren't doing that, um, and that's really sad. It's almost like the GPs don't understand the properties of the drugs that they're actually uh, prescribed. A lot of um, this is just anecdotes that I've heard from friends, from uh, colleagues, uh, that there is a lack of understanding about why people use any kind of drug, not just opiates, but any kind of drug. Um, Among many GPs, it doesn't seem like they have particularly good training on these things. So that when they're approached by somebody who does uh, like drugs for whatever reason, I'm not saying that somebody is necessarily even addicted... Yeah. But they like drugs, and there's a it's a there's a brick wall. There's yeah. a brick wall there. You can't talk to a lot of GPs about this sort of thing. No, people are scared of judgment, and they get judgment a lot from GPs. Yeah, not every GP. There are yeah. some that are really good, 
and that's become almost like a commodity. I see conversations in the communities uh, about trying to find the right GP that everybody, and then everybody goes and that's right. locks that GP. Yeah. It's um, it seems like we need better training for yes. GPs on yeah. drug, just being familiar with drugs generally. Yeah, and and you know, hence uh, the community at large. You know, we need. You know, I, I feel like that the community is mature enough to be able to understand these things around drug use because we all do it. We all drink coffee. We all, mm-hmm. you know, have... Even tea. <laughs> it's right. It's, you know, I, uh, it's sort of a beggar's belief, really, that we haven't been able to sort of uh, break open the gates of understanding in regards to drugs and move on from the fact of the no, you just shouldn't do it mm. campaigns. So I, I think that, um, yeah, it's a combination of GP training but also people who um, really understand the vagaries of being a human being. <laughs> Finally, before yes. we finish up, have you been following the Victorian government's um, inquiry into drug law reform? Uh, slightly. <laughs> did you see that a uh, response was released from the government one week ago? I did see the response, yes. Do you have any thoughts on the 24-page response to a 650-page uh, inquiry where people travelled the world uh, to gather their information? I'm wondering. Uh... Unfortunately, I haven't read all of it. The main parts that I read were around naloxone provision, which I was pleased to to see that they did actually step up yep. Yep, towards that. and uh, But um, I uh, rhetoric for me is very lacking on the ground. Uh, I did hear the Greens talk and I was so pleased with their rhetoric. That's what I loved about the talk. Yes, no, the rhetoric is not necessarily uh, very intelligent even. Thank you very much for My chatting today. pleasure. Nice to meet you. Thank We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, grey, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one.
and you shouldn't have done this.
Psychedelia on 3CR, Community Radio 855 AM 3CR Digital, 3cr.org.au. You just heard from Aeon, uh, sorry, from Supercilious. Supercilious is a uh, producer from Colorado, one of the few times that we play non-Melbourne music on the show, and that is the song Aeon Bahamut, which you can find on both SoundCloud and Bandcamp. This is 3CR. thousand years was a was a place basically burning man for ancient Greece. It's like eighteen miles outside Athens and every year people would gather there and they'd do this kind of engage in this kind of bacchanalian revelry. You know, you'd pass around this hallucinogenic drug and everyone would drink it and there'd be this kind of huge intoxication party and uh, and it was shut down by Christianity. When Christianity becomes the official religion um it, it's shut down because one of the things you always see is religion and drugs are in a sense competing for the same headspace and what they don't want is for people to be able to get a shortcut to the state of ecstasy and reverie that they say you should only get from religion. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, when the Spanish, uh, when the conquistadors first uh, invade Latin America, uh, you know, the first thing they do is shut down the local hallucinogenic rites because they want people to only be able to get it through communion and so on. they, They don't want these things to happen. So I think you're right, and you see a lot of the movement towards prohibition, both of alcohol and other drugs, comes from the temperance movement and comes from this belief that alternative forms of ecstasy and reverie are unacceptable and evil and have to be stopped. And all of this is a distraction from what really does cause addiction. In fact, the tragedy is it makes addiction worse. So if you look at when addiction does actually happen, you know, I've talked a lot about this and it's something that really blew my mind. Um, it's not something I understood before I started doing the research for this, is, um, you know, if you'd said to me four years ago, what causes heroin addiction? You know, I think I would have looked at you like you were a bit stupid. I would say, obviously, heroin causes heroin addiction. (laughs) Exactly. We've been told for 100 years this story that's become totally part of our common sense, which is, you know, if you, me, and the next 20 people to walk past your studio all took heroin together for 20 days, because there are chemical hooks in heroin, our body would start to physically need it, we desperately crave it, and when we were deprived of it, we would be left with this ravenous hunger, and that's what addiction is. And the first thing that led to me, in fact, saying not right about that, is when it was explained to me, when this interview's over, I step out into the street and get hit by a truck. 
and I'll, I'll be taken and break my hip. I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given loads of diamorphine for the pain. Diamorphine is heroin, right? It's actually much better heroin than you're going to get from a dealer because it's medically pure, whereas the stuff you get from a dealer is obviously contaminated and not much of it is actually heroin. Um, now, if what we believe about addiction is right, what should happen? A lot of those people, at least some of them, should become addicts, right? This has been studied very carefully. It, it virtually never happens. And when I learned that, I thought, oh, this, I didn't understand it. It just didn't seem to make sense to me. Until I went and interviewed this guy called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor of psychology in Vancouver. And, and Professor Alexander explained to me, this idea of addiction we've got in our heads comes partly from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really easy experiments to do. Your listeners can do it at home today if they're feeling a bit cruel. <laughs> um, you get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's our story about addiction. But in the 70s, Professor Alexander comes along and says, well, hang on a minute. We're putting this rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except use these drugs. Let's try this differently. So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats, right? <laughs> Anything a rat could want in life, it's got in Rat Park. It's got cheese, it's got coloured balls, it's got tunnels, it's got loads of friends that can have loads of sex. And it's got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. There's loads of human examples I can give you, but what this tells us is addiction is not about the chemicals. Addiction is about your cage. It's not a disease. It's an adaptation to your environment. If you are in an unbearable situation where you are cut off from meaning, and that can be as true if you're a Wall Street banker as if you're a homeless person, you will bond and connect with some kind of behavior that will give you some kind of relief. That could be, you know... Um, pornography, it could be gambling, it could be ice, it could be alcohol. But the underlying dynamic is the same. The core of addiction is about not being able to bear to be present in your life. And when you know that, suddenly the insanity of the war on drugs becomes clear. If pain and isolation are major drivers of addiction, inflicting more pain and more isolation on an addict isn't going to make them better, it's actually going to make them worse. I never forget, I went to this prison in Arizona called Tent City. I write about this in Chasing the Scream, where... You know, women are made to go out on a chain gang wearing T-shirts saying I was an addict and forced to dig graves while members of the public jeer at them. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen. But when I went back to the prison, I said that there's this place the women are terrified of called The Hole, which is the solitary confinement block. And I said to the guards, will you show me The Hole? I was sure they wouldn't. And they did. They took me there. And I went there and I looked at these women who were literally put in tiny little cages alone with nothing for a month. And I suddenly thought, this is the closest you could ever get to a literal human reenactment of the cages that guaranteed addiction in rats. And yet this is what we do to, to them struggling with to, to them thinking it'll make them stop. Mm. It's it's insane. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. This is In Psychedelia, and we're speaking now with Johan Hari, who will be speaking live in Melbourne this Wednesday night at the uh, Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Tickets available from eventbrite.com. And, uh, Johan, one of the things that you... you um, 
uh, you, you sort of one of your main quotes from the book is the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection, and and that's well demonstrated through um, the the example of Rat Park that when the rats have connection, they are less likely to be addicted, showing that the problem isn't that if if people t- or if rats or if any animal takes this certain drug, then it overcomes their brain, possesses their will, and they become an automaton who uh, is controlled by this drug. There, what, what people actually need is, is connection. Uh, we were actually speaking with Mum, Mark Lewis, who I, I believe you've spoken to this mm, week as well. Yeah, I like um, Mark a lot. Yeah. Mark's he, very, very good on the topic. And we were speaking with him uh, last week about, um, about the nature of addiction and the way that we think about it at the moment as, uh, as a disease. I actually heard it described by an Australian politician as a disease of the will. And I thought that was an interesting wow. thing to say because um, uh, a, dis- a disease of the will, that, that certainly highlights that he thinks it's a moral issue. Uh, so it's connection. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about why connection, uh, why connection is, is the thing that's, that's needed above, uh, above to, to help people that are struggling with addiction of any kind, not just to drugs, but... There's a danger when we talk about this, it can sound a bit abstract or something. And I think it's really important to understand there's nothing, if we're listening to this, there's nothing abstract about this. We can look at real places. I went to 12 countries now. I've been to 12 countries to look into this now. And I've been to places that try, every different approach has been tried by now. And I think the place that illustrates exactly what you're saying is Portugal. In the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. 1% of the population was addicted to heroin. And every year they tried the drug war more, they arrested and imprisoned more people. And every year the problem got worse. And one day the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they said, basically, we can't carry on like this, what are we going to do? And they decided to set up a panel of scientists and doctors to look at all this evidence, including Rat Park, and figure out what would genuinely solve the problem. So they went away, led by this amazing doctor that I got to know called Huao Gulao. And they came back and they said, decriminalise all drugs, from cannabis to ice. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we used to spend on making addicts' lives worse and spend it instead on making their lives better. And it's interesting, it's not really what we think of as drug treatment. I know that you, like me, are very sceptical of the rehab industry and the way of uh, talking about it as a disease. It's really interesting what they did in Portugal. So they do pay for a bit of residential rehab, long-term residential rehab, not short-term, which is completely useless. Um, and they do pay for a bit of psychological support, but the biggest thing they did is the opposite of what we do in Britain and Australia and the US. We give addicts criminal records that cut them off further, right? We make it really hard for them to get back to the legal economy. What they did in Portugal was set up a massive program of job creation for addicts. Say you used to be a mechanic. They'll go to a garage and they'll say... <clears throat> If you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. The goal was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to get out of bed for in the morning. Mm. They set up a huge program of uh, micro-loans for addicts to set up small businesses. They wanted to say to every addict, you are valued, we want you, we need you. And as the addicts got back to a sense of purposeful life, um, they started to form connections, they started to get back into relationships. It's now been 15 years since, it'll be very soon, it'll be 15 years since this experiment began. The results are in. Injecting drug use in Portugal is down by 50%. Addiction is massively down. Overdose is massively down. Um, HIV transmission among addicts is massively down. Street crime is massively down. One of the ways you know it's worked so well is that virtually no one in Portugal wants to go back. I went and interviewed this guy called Juan Figuera. He's the top drug cop in Portugal. And he led the opposition to the decriminalisation at the time when it happened. 
uh, you know, and he said the things that loads of people, you know, say the whole time. Surely this will lead to a complete disaster. Uh, he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt ashamed that he'd spent 20 years arresting and uh, making addicts worse before the decriminalization. And he hoped the whole world followed Portugal's example. And it's really important to understand, everywhere I've been where they've moved beyond the drug war, you know, there's a real sense of relief when people see the alternatives. And actually, I think it's important to talk as well about one of the most catastrophic effects of the drug war here in Australia, uh, which is really under-debated, which is the incredible amount of violence caused by drug prohibition in this country, right? Uh, and I tell the story in Chasing the Screen mainly of the violence caused by prohibition, mainly through two people I got to know, Chino Hardin, who's a transgender crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, and Rosalio Retta, who's a, who was a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, Los Zetas, who I got to know. He's in prison now. Um, and, I, and I went to Juarez, one of the deadliest cities in the world mm. at the time. And um, But the dynamic is the same, and it's playing out here in Australia. I'll give you two examples, right? Um, a couple of, uh, just from the last few weeks, a small-time drug dealer called Harvey Spence um, suspected someone he knew being a police informant. Actually, it turns out he wasn't. So he drove him out to the countryside in Johnsonville and suffocated him to death, burned his body in a shed, dumped the ashes in the Tambo River. The judges said, the judge at the time said it was one of the most horrible deaths he could imagine. Uh, in Kalgoorlie, four men were accused of physically dismembering a 24-year-old man called Bo Davis for being a rival drug seller. I could go on and on, Dan. This is one of the biggest drivers of the murder rate in Australia. And if people want to understand how this is related to the drug war, this is entirely caused by the drug war. Um, picture this. If you or me, when we finished speaking, decided we want to go and steal a bottle of vodka, um, we went to your local liquor store and they caught us, uh, that liquor store would call the police and the police would take us away. So that store doesn't need to be violent. It doesn't need to be intimidating. Mm. It you know, has the, the law to back up its property rights. If, however, you and I decided we wanted to steal some weed or some coke, and that guy catches us, obviously he can't call the police, right? The police would arrest him. He has to be violent and intimidating. He has to establish his patch by violence, and he has to defend his patch by violence. Now, you don't want to be having a fight every day, so you've got to establish a reputation for being such a badass that no one will dare to come and take you on. Now, that dynamic... But the best way of putting it is Charles Bowden, a brilliant American writer, said, the war on drugs creates a war for drugs. And there is this really misleading term used by the Australian media sometimes where they talk about drug-related violence. Mm. And that implies that what's happened in, say, those cases I just talked about is someone used drugs, lost the plot, and attacked someone. That does happen sometimes. It's around 2 to 7% of what's described as drug-related violence. All the rest, the vast majority, is in fact prohibition-related violence. It's dealers killing each other or people who get in the way or cops to control the patch. Well, that's not drug-related. I mean, if we banned milk and people still wanted milk, that, that violence would surround the milk trade. That's the result of prohibition. Al Capone wasn't getting drunk and killing people. He was fighting for control of a prohibited market. And if you want to know why it ends, ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers in Chicago today? They don't exist. Alcohol hasn't changed. What's changed is the system of regulation. All this violence, the, one of the biggest drivers of murder in Australia and the worst murders in Australia, that can be ended. Thanks for weird.
and you've just been hearing from Johan Hari, who we spoke to on In Psychedelia three years ago, uh, almost exactly to the date. And now Johan Hari is back in Australia. Uh, Ash, he will be um, speaking at an upcoming event. At um, a Drug Policy Australia event on Thursday, the 20th of September from 6.30 until 9pm. He'll be speaking at the Melbourne Town Hall. It was sold out, but they've shifted it to a bigger room. So there's still um, quite a few tickets left, I believe. And uh, he'll also be doing a book signing for... um his newest book, which is called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, which I haven't um, read his new book. His uh, his first book, Chasing the Screen, was actually the first book I ever got an author to sign. So I've got my, right. <laughs> got my signed copy of that one sitting at home. But I've heard good things Worth about millions. his, his uh, new book as well. And so he'll be giving a talk there, but also be doing some book signings. Uh, so please do go along. I mean, he's one of these... Um international superheroes of uh, the the discussion around drugs. He's breaking uh, barriers. He doesn't necessarily know what's best. He, he doesn't... He's not necessarily an expert in any area, but he's pushing what's going on with the, the conversation internationally, with how we talk about these the issues. Yeah, I think he... I mean, what, what makes him really compelling is he's just a really good storyteller. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.